This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Hey, podcast listeners. Peter and I hope our conversations about the musicals we love is prompting some further thoughts and conversation for you. And so we hope that you'll consider joining us under the auspices of Vancouver School of Theology in British Columbia for a class that we'll be teaching on Zoom this summer called The Gospel and Musical Theater, Race and Redemption. We'll be focusing on questions of race and how they factor into the history of musical theater, as well as what we can learn from one another as we reflect theologically on these questions as they show up in in some of our favorite musicals like Annie Get Your Gun, Showboat, Ragtime, and West Side Story, Into the Heights, and Hamilton, and many, many more, there is no more important topic for people of faith to be confronting right now, we believe, than white supremacy and the many, many ways it has played out in North American history and culture. So we'll be teaching on Zoom. You can join us from wherever you happen to be, July 12th through the 16th this summer. We hope that you'll join us. You can read more and register at the Vancouver School of Theology website. That's www.vst.edu backslash summer school. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Gospel According to Musical Theater. I'm Nathan. I'm the Dean of Trinity Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. And I'm Peter Elliott. I'm a retired Anglican priest, uh formerly Dean of Christchurch Cathedral, speaking to you from Vancouver, British Columbia. I now work as a coach and a consultant, and I'm really excited as a podcaster. Imagine that. Here we are. A- adding to your, your list of <laughs> retirement hats, aren't you? It's a whole new world. We are we are a part of that collection of, of two white men doing podcasts in a time of <laughs> pandemic. I'm a, I'm a little I'm a little loath to become a, a statistic, but that's all right. We'll uh, we're two queer white men. How does that does that does I, I think that helps a, or does it help a, a little, little bit? I, I don't know if it helps a little bit. <laughs> we're talking it totally about, helps with the topic. Yeah, we're talking, talking about, about musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've got a great one to talk about today. We've uh, been working our way through the musicals of Rodgers and Hammerstein, that great mid-century revolutionary partnership that changed the Broadway musical forever. And we have their second musical to talk about today, Carousel from 1945, arguably their their finest score. What do you what do you what do you want to say about the score? It is Carousel, it's a Peter? brilliant score. It's uh the second uh, musical that uh, had a run on Broadway for Rodgers and Hammerstein, not quite as successful as Oklahoma um, in terms of audience appeal, um, numbers of performances, all that sort of thing. But 1945, I think arguably this is Richard Rodgers uh, at his very, very best, just making the orchestra orchestrations that are lush and melodic the um, carousel waltz that is the overture to the whole thing is quite often performed by symphony orchestras, pop orchestras as a, as a piece on its own. And it sets the, literally sets the stage, doesn't it? For the, yeah. For what's, what is it about 12, 12 minutes, 13 minutes of pure I mean, dance theater, mm, choreographed movement. 
to to probably yeah as as you say probably one of Rogers' finest pieces of music writing. It's just a it's just an amazing piece of music, but uh, intricately staged. The stage directions are something like four or five printed pages of italicized rubrics. Oh boy! Um, so it's they're actually very specific about what they want you to see. I think different productions do different things with the carousel waltz, but the idea here is that before a word is spoken or sung, you're invited into the world of New England. What is it? Turn of the century, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, something like that. The, the play um, it was transposed oh. from by Frank Molnar. 1909. So yeah, turn of the century is pretty Turn of the good. century. Yeah. Yeah. So a world of girls who work in factories, kind of uh, lower, 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 or lower middle class girls, kind of working class girls. Uh, you're invited into the world of the, the carousel, the fair that's happening. Uh, the, the kind of, the, do we still say carny folks? Is that, an, is that an appropriate term? Professional workers at the carnival, <laughs> individuals who, who make their living as carnival employees. I don't know what the correct term for that is, but uh, they're, they're also sort of, you know, what uh, sort of folks who exist on the margin of society in some ways. And that, that becomes especially important with Billy Bigelow, who is uh, never really integrates into the kind of very tight knit New England world. Um, he's from Coney Island. He's an outsider. He's a carny. Uh, he's got charisma. He's got sex, sex appeal. appeal also, yeah. a deep strand of violence running through this guy. So you, you were introduced to him and his boss, Mrs. Mullins, who's got a thing for him and is also exploiting him as labor. And there's, I mean, there's all kinds of interesting stuff happening in the Carousel Waltz. It just kind of lays out the whole world for us and uh, and what's going to happen. And it's a it's a tricky story, isn't it? It's a really tricky story. Yeah, I mean, theater companies all over knock themselves out building the carousel for that one scene, which sometimes they bring back for a curtain call because they've spent half their production so much money building, building a, a carousel, carousel. <laughs> um, <clears throat> which which features in literally one scene, one scene. and maybe yeah, yeah, as you say, maybe the end. Yeah, yeah. The um, and the carousel is, I think, uh, amongst many things, but a, a sort of visual metaphor, if you like, for the the track that Julie Jordan and the other working class girls, young women from this uh, no-name town somewhere in the state of Maine on the coast mm-hmm. uh, are locked into just going round and round. They're, they're never really going to get off their uh their lives uh they're on a track and billy bigelow represents freedom i mean mm-hmm. sure he's uh on the margin sure he's a carnival worker but he's from coney island he's moved if the fair is a roaming fair which i've always assumed uh, yeah that's my assumption too yeah then he does get to travel he gets to move he gets he's not stuck on the carousel but Julie Jordan and Billy Bigelow meet. They fall in love. And they fall in love musically in the most wonderful way. In one song, If I Loved You, which in some ways is the definition of the conditional love song, a a trope of the American musical theater that we'll come back to again and again. It's People Will Say We're In Love um, Mm -hmm. is from Oklahoma. Yeah, it's, if I loved you, if I loved you, it's almost like being in love like from Brigadoon. That's Lerner and Lowe. Mm-hmm. Um, on it goes. But if I loved you is uh, a whole scene in a song, beginning with a kind of flirtation, leading through to a, a dialogue, a kind of teasing dialogue, 
the stars come out in the midst of the song. It ends with a kiss. They start the song being strangers. They end it being in love. It's mm-hmm. a great moment. And the next time we see them, they've been married for <laughs> a period of some months, I think, because Julie's pregnant, and things are not going well. So, I mean, they, they, Roger and Hammerstein set up what I think is, you know, here, here's two people, they're going to fall in love, and we're going to watch a romantic story about two people from very different parts of the world who find happiness with one another. That is not the story that Carousel tells and one of our one of our i suppose ongoing questions with this show is you know to what degree is carousel subverting expectations and and in some ways saying something pretty forward thinking maybe even kind of revolutionary about men and women and some of the challenges there and to what degree is carousel itself perpetuating a kind of problematic story about redeeming domestic violence that has done as much harm as as good. In, in some ways, you know, ahead of its time in that it's, pre- it's presenting domestic violence to you very forthrightly, very literally, unabashedly on the musical theater stage. You know, a, a man who beats his wife. Everybody in town knows it. I don't think we ever actually see Billy beat her, but I think he does slap her at one point, and, and everybody talks about it. They all know that he's beating you. Her, her friend Carrie says, when are you going to hit him back? So there's a, there's a realization among the characters that, like, this is not okay behavior, although it is understood, right? Everybody everybody understands that this is a thing that happens, um, and there are different ways that different couples navigate it. There are people who encourage Julie to leave. There are people that encourage Billy to leave Julie. But the story, at least at one level, is about Billy. I mean, he he really becomes a protagonist, right? And he's, he's the one who gets the soliloquy at the end of the first act, where he's wrestling with what it's going to mean to have a child and how that locks him in. He dies, about, I think at the, about halfway through the second act, goes up to heaven. There's a really interesting sequence of afterlife scenes. We're, we're, we're not entirely sure that Carousel is the only musical to present heaven on the Broadway stage, but we think it might be one of only a few that, uh, that go there, that, that give us a, a vision of the afterlife in the context of a musical. And it's a, and it's, and it's a very strange it's a curious vision. curious afterlife. Well. It's a very strange vision. It's not yeah. quite you, you, daunting. You liken it to... Uh, no, it's not daunting. In fact, if anything, it's Thornton Wilder. Yeah. It's sort of like the afterlife is as our town or something like that. Very, actually, in a, in a sort of, I find, kind of unsettling way, the afterlife of Carousel is very much like the world of New England Carousel, right? It's a sort right. of crusty New England schoolmaster up on a ladder who's, you know, a little, what? He's, he's kind of playful. He's a little, uh, he's crusty. He's, you know, he's not really out, out to make friends. Billy, you know, there's been a, a kind of a through line where Billy has been told by his companions, like, you know, if, if you die, you're never going to appear before God, right? Like, don't worry about God judging you. The best you're ever going to get is some police magistrate version of heaven. So there's this really interesting kind of, social critique at work, both in the the world of Carousel, the New England world of Carousel. People like Billy are never going to get to appear before the Supreme Court. They are only ever going to get a police magistrate. And that world is kind of translated then into the afterlife, where Billy, you know, is given a second chance. And he says, I want to plead my case before God, before God himself. Well, that's not quite what he gets. He gets the star catcher, who it's not really clear who he is. Uh, but some kind of functionary. He says, you're not actually, the pearly gates are over there. You're kind of in the back the back garden. You're not in heaven yet. So it's some kind of outside waiting room to heaven. It's not really clear where Billy is. But this kind of in-between place where he is, at least kind of as the story goes, given a, a second chance, given a chance at, at redemption, 
goes back to Earth, uh, sees his daughter, meets his daughter, the daughter he never knew. Uh, she's a lot like Billy in a lot of ways, also kind of pushing at a, at a world that constrains her. Uh, she has a kind of rebellious streak that I think Billy recognizes. He tries to give her a star, which is a weird thing to try to <laughs> give to a girl. But they have this kind of moment, uh, an almost connection. She recognizes something in him. He sees something in her. She rejects the star. He slaps her. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, you know, he can't, he can't, he's also on a kind of a carousel, right? Like this man cannot get out of a certain cycle of violence. He hurts the ones he loves. And that's presented to us as, I mean, certainly true at one level, but also with a degree of, I mean, I think we're meant to sympathize with Billy, right? I think we're meant to work to understand and, and have compassion for this man who cannot help but hurt the ones he loves the most. That's presented to us as like, you know, uh, a situation that we can recognize and have sympathy for. Billy botches that kind of first attempt, and it gives rise to Carousel's most problematic line, right? When Louise kind of goes inside to her mother and says, hey, this weird thing happened to me. This guy slapped me, and it didn't hurt. Mother, is it possible for somebody to hit you, and you don't feel it? Now, literally, what Louise is asking is, you know, like when— and actually, in the Molnar play, I think the line that she has is like, he slapped me and it felt like a kiss, which is because he's a ghost, right? Like there's, I mean, she's she's actually asking a kind of existential question. Julie hears it as a kind of, uh, you know, a question about her own choices as a wife and as a mother, you know, falling in love with this guy who was horrible to her and sticking with him, you know, like she's, she's already sung, what's the use of wondering if he's good or if he's bad or if you like the way he wears his hat, he's your feller and you love him. That's all there is to that. That's Julie's through line. So Louise asks her, is it possible for somebody to hit you and you don't feel it? And you can sort of imagine her eyes welling up with tears, right? This widow who's been mourning this asshole she married. (laughs) Yes, darling. Of course, it's possible for somebody to hit you and you don't feel it at all. And every contemporary... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, anybody who's ever been, who's ever experienced domestic abuse or been close to anybody who's experienced domestic abuse gasps in horror yeah. and kind of recoils a little bit at this kind of naive and unproblematic depiction of a woman who just accepts it and loves him anyway. And that's presented to us at a kind of surface level as a laudable choice she has made. Yeah. And that's, I, at least for me, that's the, I don't know what I, I, I don't know if I can defend that artistic choice on behalf of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Yeah, yeah. It is a problematic play. And I mean, I think the question, you and I have talked about this a number of times, is, you know, is Carousel best dusted off, put in a drawer and said, you know, it was great for its time or maybe it wasn't. Yeah. But it, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't. Yeah. But uh, it has uh, it has no business being performed again. I mean, it yeah. does contrast. Uh, and again, just looking at the form of musical theater, uh, we get the two couples. Um, this mm-hmm. is quite quite a standard thing that will come over uh, come upon time and time again. And in Carousel, we have uh, Billy and Julie, and you've described the contours of their very problematic relationship, but contrasted with them uh, is her friend Carrie Snodgrass, Mm -hmm. who marries Enoch Snow. And they are about as opposite from Billy and Julie, as you can imagine. Maybe only that, no, they're opposite. I was going to say maybe that uh, Enoch is, you know, fully employed, as I guess Billy was, although he struggled for money. Although he... 
Well, and he and he sort of resigns his position when and chooses Julie, right? Mrs. Mullen right. says, "I'll fire you if you stick with this girl." And he says, "All right, fire me." Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's he, I think we're, he's presented with as somebody who's struggling for work. Julie says he Billy's had a really hard time getting work, uh, whereas Enoch is economically on the rise. He's a fisherman. Right? The guy can do no They're wrong. about to have a big family. Everything's going really, really well for Carrie and Enoch. It would seem, although even their relationship gets a bit problematic. And Billy, yeah, he he commits suicide or he's knifed. I think the script says that he falls yeah. on his own knife, but I've on also his knife. seen it's usually it. yeah. I think the Molnar play, he commits suicide. Yeah. So there's, I mean, that's that's kind of what we're. It's kind of like Judd Fry in Oklahoma, right? Well, does he fall on his own knife? Is does curl? I mean, different productions stage this differently, right? Is it is it the character's choice? Does something happen to them? And there, as with you know Billy, right? I think there's a kind of at least in 1945, kind of a deep discomfort on presenting a protagonist of a musical as making the choice to kill himself, yeah. right? Like, that's a problematic thing to put on stage in 1945. Not so much now, right? Now we're, you know, like, that's... And so, and that's presumably, right? I think the line is Billy saying, like, I'm I'm not going to be... I don't remember what he says, but something like, I'm not going to be caught in this again, right? Like, I'm not right. going to go to jail. Um, and so he chooses death over being caught, yeah. uh, which is, I mean, kind of presented to us as, I mean, and, and it is kind of a selfish choice, right? Leaving his wife, who's three months pregnant or whatever she is, alone to care for this child. Um, he just kind of outs himself and then goes up to heaven and Right, because <clears throat> he's involved in a foiled robbery. Yeah. A stupid, I mean, the way it's set up in the yeah, play. Yeah, a really badly like, planned. Oh, come yeah. on, Billy. Like Ill-conceived. You're, you're sitting in the, I'm sitting in the audience always saying, come on, Billy, you know, just really, you know, like just choice bad choice after bad choice and and dies and uh gosh i remember when i saw this i was about nine years old one of the first musicals i saw on the palace theater stage in st Catharines, ontario uh the niagara region and and he dies and then they did some stage magic where you Mm -hmm. still saw his body on stage it was clearly a bunch of uh sugar sacks or whatever in his costume and then the actor kind of stood up behind and and approached the star the stargazer on the and wow this is amazing uh-huh. um i mean i was nine i was easily fooled um <laughs> <laughs> but in the midst of all that julie of course is grief stricken she's traumatized and uh Nettie, one of the women in this Amazing group of women who stand by with and for Julie all the way through. She steps forward, always a contralto, and sings uh, what? Except when, except when sung by Rene Fleming. <laughs> Where they actually they, they transpose. They oh, they transpose quite a yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, you can't you can't keep those high notes down. No, but yeah, best when she's sung by a contralto because yeah. she she is kind of that uh, that. Earth Mother, you know. I mean, we, we, we've likened that character. And Roger Hammerstein love a sort of good, solid, re- I would say religiously oriented contralto, yeah. right? She sings almost always something that's really as a hymn as much as it is a, kind of a Broadway anthem, right? You'll Never Walk Alone is kind of the great one, which is basically an American hymn by this point. Yeah. Um, but Lady Chang in, in The King and I serves this role. Aunt Eller, although she never really gets a song, serves this role in Oklahoma. Yeah. The Reverend Mother, classically in The in Sound of Music, right? Climb Every Mountain is a great example Something of the, and we, we've likened this character 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, she's almost the priest of yeah. the of the musical, right? She's the she's the officiant. She's the celebrant. She's the one who uh, sort of. Uh, comes into the action and gives something like a sermon or a benediction or a blessing that doesn't, it doesn't, you know, make everything okay, but it it takes all of the story and kind of puts it in this transcendent kind of quasi-religious key. It's yeah. a really interesting role that Roger and Hammerstein give to the contralto yeah. in, in these pieces. And it's, I mean, it, I, I think a lot about the words of it. Is, is it a hymn toward uh, self-reliance, you know, on one hand, uh, you know, walk through a storm, keep your chin, not your head, your chin up high. Mm-hmm. Your chin up um, high. Don't be afraid of dark, etc. That at, at the end of the storm, golden light, things things will have a way of working out. Walk on, be be strong, uh, with hope in your heart. Hope in your and heart. And you'll never, and walk, you'll never alone. walk alone. And I don't think Julie does walk alone, actually. I think, you know, Nettie and... And Carrie and the other women from the mill and who live in the town gather around her. But just to return to the theme of domestic abuse, I think, sadly, Mm -hmm. many women in North America and indeed around the world do walk alone in the valley of that particular shadow of of being battered by husbands, boyfriends, partners, whatever. And and so I, I wonder, does it? And I'm I'm of mixed feelings about this. Does does you never does you'll never walk alone hold out a kind of false hope on one hand? Does it really talk about the transcendent or is it kind of a hymn to self reliance and to the uh, ideals of community? And... Yeah. When you walk through a storm, hold your head. an ambivalence there isn't it because and because the the, the the you'll never walk alone gets reprised at the very end of the show right, right. when uh when it's louise's graduation day and she's struggling and julie's struggling and billy finally gets like this one lat he's botched up his last chance but he they give him kind of one last chance to intervene and it's actually i think the star catcher who suddenly becomes the, the graduation speaker the doctor yeah, or whatever he is doctor, yeah, yeah. I, I raised both of you i delivered you into this world and, there, and there's an old song that i used to sing when i was a kid maybe i'll <laughs> sing it and it's so so, I mean, like, oh, my God, New England. But um, he starts saying the words, right? When you walk through a storm, keep your chin up high. I mean, it sounds very sort of crusty New England, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But that's the moment, you know, the, everybody starts singing it and Billy's unseen, right? But I think he he kneels in front of Louise. Some, he, he and Louise have some kind of moment and then she starts to sing, right? right. It's like he gives her the gift of 
I don't know, a, a companionship, I guess. You're not in this alone, Louise. Like, I, your dead father from beyond the grave, am here to support you, which is a little fucked up, right? Because, like, he's not a, like, I don't know that you really want Billy Bigelow in your corner, girl, but whatever. And then he says to, to Julie, finally, I love you, Julie. Know that I love you, right? This whole kind of wraparound of the conditional love song, right? right? These are two people that have never managed to say to one another, I love you. They say, if I loved you, here's how it would be. And actually, what they sketch in If I Love You, right, is not a very... It's actually a very honest depiction of what happens to them. If I loved you, time and again, I would try to say all I want you to know. If I loved you, words wouldn't come in an easy way. Round in circles, like on a carousel, carousel. round in circles I'd go. Longing to tell you, but afraid and shy, I'd let my golden chances pass me by. Soon, you'd leave me. Off you would go in the... The what? The bliss of day? The, the something of day. day? Never, never. T- the midst of day. The mist. The mist, the mist of, of day. day. Off you'd go in the mist of day. Never, never to know how I loved you. If. if I, I mean, it's a love song about I can't tell you, yeah. which is, of course, exactly what happens to them, right? Like they, they can never. Julie, Julie finally says when she's cradling Billy's dead body after he knifes himself, I love you. I was never able to say it to you, Billy. I love you. And then finally at the end, he is able to say to her, I love you, Julie. Know that I have always loved you. And that, I mean, there again, right? Like that's meant to be a moment of redemption, right? That is meant to be his, uh, his final act by which he redeems himself of all of the horrible stuff that he's done to people who love him. People, I mean, like this man has just done, you know, nothing right in his life. But we're meant, I think, to see this as a moment of redemption. He, you know, the star catcher takes his hand and he walks off into the glowing light of heaven and, you know, and they're left back on earth to stand in solidarity as community. And at one level, that's a beautiful picture of the power of human redemption, the power of love to redeem even the worst human choices. None of us are reduced to our worst day. Um, Even somebody who beat his wife and killed himself, he too can be redeemed through love. I mean, there's something that I want to say, like that's that's a pretty gospel-oriented story. And there's also a way in which if it's not, I don't know, like if it's presented as all of this violence that has happened is now somehow okay, right? This is the the myth of redemptive suffering that I think really, it's a tension that lies at the heart of the Christian story, right? If If we understand Easter Sunday as somehow a redemption of Good Friday, right? That, or even worse, that Jesus had to die, that he had to shed his blood, Right, that that violence was somehow necessary, necessary in yeah. order for the redemption to happen. Yeah. Right, that is a uh, I think a story that a lot of contemporary theologians are saying that's that's the problem. Right, that narrative is what gives rise to narratives like Carousel yeah. that present in very kind of unproblematic ways phenomenons of violence, usually enacted against women, against minorities, against queer people. Right, against all of the kind of scapegoats of society. This pernicious cultural idea. That violence is okay or necessary and can be redeemed if we just have enough whatever, if we just, you know, kind of love one another through it. Um, And at a certain level, at a kind of very base, kind of literal level, I want to say bullshit. Yeah. Right? Bullshit. Violence is not okay. Absolutely. If I loved you, words wouldn't come in an easy way.
also wonder, you know, about the timing of writing this and choosing this material. 1945, so we're just before the end of the Second World War. We're in this time uh, in England and Canada and the United States when soldiers were beginning to return home, begin their families, the growth of the suburbs across North America. And in so many cases, the returning soldiers had been traumatized in the war, were depressed and turned often to alcohol or other substances, and too often, I think, turned to acting out their violence on their partners, on their wives, as a way to seek to express or process the horror that they'd experienced in the theaters of war. So uh, on one hand, and we've, we've said this kind of already, but it, I think it, it kind of it would just circle back in a kind of carousel-like way, you have to applaud Rodgers and Hammerstein for adapting this material and putting a story that's clearly about domestic abuse, about violence yeah. by men against women at the center of a drama in a musical play in 1945. Mm -hmm. There was a bravery there, and I think there was a relevance, whether they were conscious of what was going on in the suburbs and actually what would be going on over the next yeah. 10, 20 for years. Um, oh, longer than that. It yeah. wasn't until in America anyway, not until 1994 that the Domestic Violence Act was enacted by Congress. So, I mean, like yeah. what they're what they're identifying is the sort of not very well hidden subtext of the, you know, of of domestic relationships in the Western world yeah. for 60, 70 years. Yeah. I mean, it was just like this. This is just something that happened that everybody knew about and mostly people didn't talk about with kind of exceptions like Karis. Yeah, and when I think back on seeing this uh, play number of times, uh, the see Carousel, it's only in recent years that the conversation has emerged that it's about domestic violence. Even though, I mean, it's almost like, right. oh, it's got these great songs, you've got June is busting out all over, um, you've right. got What the Use of Wondering, you've got Billy's great soliloquy. Uh, the, You've got this was a real nice clam bake, which is I think song. one of my top. Oh, it's my favorite. That's one of my favorite Roger Hammerstein song of all because it's just it's just pure like it's just about getting you back. Like it's about like we've just had, taken an intermission break. You probably had a couple drinks. You're probably falling asleep. So here we are. We're gonna sing about a clam bake, you know, and like get everybody up and like it's it's basically it's a kind of a beer drinking song. They're just like swinging their pints back and forth about how great the clams were. It goes into great detail too about how you steam them. It's a great song. <laughs> Then at last come the clams, steamed under rockweed and popping from their shells. Just how many of them galloped down our gullets? We
love so you got all those things and you've got i mean it, it is a tearjerker um yeah. lots of rogers and hammerstein are i mean certainly the king and i muffled cries throughout as the king dies at the end do people cry at the sound of music maybe oh, but, yes. you know I'm sure they climb do. every mountain during climb every mountain how could you not uh, yeah and i guess you, you can weep a little bit at the end of south pacific with nelly forbush and emil de Beck finally settled with their yeah. very cute polynesian children french polynesian children but at carousel people yeah, weep buckets partly and it, just to go back to kind of where we started because the richard rogers tune his music i mean the the, the the lyric lines of you'll never walk alone, as you say, it's hymnic, it's anthemic, is very affecting just on a musical. And then, you know, the hope that it holds out. Um, we've kind of looked at the other side of that. Is this a anthem towards self-reliance? But... Right. You know, maybe to be kind I don't, to I don't it. know that it is. Yeah, if we're being kind to it, I mean, certainly at one level, at a kind of basic level, you know, Carousel is telling a pretty problematic story about, you know, men and women, men who are struggling with violence, who are, as you say, coming back from having seen unspeakably horrible things in war um, and are, are trying to find some way to reintegrate. And that's Billy's whole question, right? How do I integrate into society and there's not really a good way for them to do that. So they end up enacting violence yeah. on those whom they love the best. Uh, and women are just supposed to deal with it, right? I mean, in some ways, like at a, at a very problematic level, Julie's sacrifice, her letting, she's the sacrificial character, right? She's the Jesus. Her letting of blood redeems Billy of his violence. Now, at a certain level, I want to say that's a bullshit story, right? That I am very interested in, like, let's not keep telling that story. Yes. Let's not keep telling victims that there is something redemptive about your suffering, yes. so you should just keep doing it, yeah. right? No. And at the same time, there is another way, I think, of, of understanding Carousel or maybe staging Carousel where Julie's – it's actually really about Julie's redemption. Mm -hmm. And it's not through her suffering or – you know, it's, her suffering is not the thing that makes her holy. It's this community, as you say, this community of women who come around her at her lowest moment. It's, it's, it's her cousin Nettie, right, who, you know, like when Julie is cradling her dead, abusive, horrible husband, knowing that she's carrying his child inside of her, yep. says, nope, you're not going to do this alone, yep. right? Right? I'm here. And I think I think actually she says, like, Julie says, what am I going to do? And Nettie says, you're going to come live with me. We're going to raise this child together. Yeah. Right. So Louise is in some ways the if there's a if there's a redemptive quality to what's happening in Julie's life, it's that she's not going to raise her kid alone. Um, and she in some ways gets off of the carousel of abuse that you, you can imagine, right? Uh, right. Like, you, you, I, you, this is never explicit, but, you know, Julie is drawn to something in Billy. And I wonder to what degree, you know, like, there's, there's some cycle of abuse that this yes. woman has experienced before Billy ever comes into it. There's probably some cycle of abuse that Billy has experienced. I mean, there's a reason that men learn to hit. Yeah. It's because they're hit. Yeah. So they're, both of these characters are caught on this carousel of violence. And you'll never walk alone in some ways can be staged, I think, as you don't have to just stay on that cycle by yourself. There's a way out, and it comes out of this kind of integration into this, I mean, what, what I want to say is sort of the, the kingdom of God, the, the beloved community, this sort of transformed. Now, that community is New England circa 1909, and okay, well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a far cry from the beloved community. But, but the musical idea of I think you'll never walk alone is there, there are these women around you, Julie. You're not going to go through this alone. And ultimately, I mean, you know, this, the song doesn't quite say this, but God is with you mm. or something is with you. Yeah. There, is a, there, is, there is love that 
is knit into your body, into your being, and that love will not let you go. Yeah. It is kind of a, a, a hymn, maybe, maybe a hymn to self-reliance, or maybe a hymn to the power of community, to women's solidarity, I mean, to all these other kinds of things I think that are going on in the play that, you know, as I say, can be fleshed out in a production maybe. It doesn't have to be a story about how Billy gets redeemed at the expense of Julie's sacrifice. Yeah. It can be a story about how two people actually, through the power of love and community, can move out of these pernicious violent cycles yeah. that have them caught. Yeah, and I've been, as you say, that, I, I, that's really important. And as you say that, I'm, I'm thinking about the early work around uh, recovery for women who were in domestic abuse was all offered by women's communities. You talked yeah. about sort of yeah. the, uh, and when I was involved in social service, mid-80s to mid-90s, um, there was this growth of halfway houses of very fierce, wonderful, loving feminist women who were opening up residences that were no questions asked. If you came in and said you'd been beaten as a, as a survivor of domestic abuse, you were enfolded, uh, connected with services, given support, because there was so much economic disadvantage for women 1945 when they wrote this and really right through and continuing in so many ways. But this the, this fierce and strong and wonderful, uh, loving community of women who in, who ensured that they would never walk alone. It in some ways could yeah. be their anthem as opposed to yeah. uh, an anthem for self-reliance or a kind of everything turns out for the best because everything's okay, yeah, at the end yeah. of the road there's yeah. a golden sky a yeah. sweet I mean, silver yeah, song level, right? of alarm like, hey when you yeah. die it's all, I mean it's pie in the sky when you die right yeah. which is I mean that's another theology yeah. that I think that for many of us as Christians right are really finding ourselves needing to push back against yeah. right death is not necessarily the, the answer to all of life's sufferings I mean at a practical level right sure that's knit into a lot of the, the great spirituals of the African American tradition right I mean so there's like we can understand psychologically how that works, right? A longing for something better and the, the promise that maybe beyond this life is, is that something better. But if that becomes a tool to trap people in their lives, then it's being used as a form of theological violence yeah. against people. Yeah. Uh, when they can find their own power and resiliency and when something like that promise of redemption can happen through solidarity, through love, through community, then I think we're onto something. That to me feels like uh, something that sounds like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, but but that, that's, a, that's an invitation that can be misused. And in some ways, Carousel walks that line, doesn't it? It's like, is, it, is, this, is this offering us something salvific? Or is this perpetuating a kind of myth of, of redemptive suffering and the, the promise that somehow through bloodletting, I will achieve my own redemption and somebody else's redemption. And if that's how it has been, I mean, you know, when you think about the generations of kids who have been raised on what's the use of wondering if he's good or if he's bad or if you like the way he's he your he's fella your fellow and, you, and love you love him. That's all there like, is to that. Yeah. Like there, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein have some blood on their hands. Yeah. This is not an, it, it's not an easy musical to forgive. Yeah. Um, I think it is a great musical to pull apart and ask some pretty deep and searching questions about because it has had a quite a bit of power yeah. over a lot of us. And that music works. It's amazing music. But it's a tricky story. And maybe, you know, this is this kind of where we started. Like, is is this a piece that we still need? Yeah. In that case, it, I don't know. it's sort of like um, Shakespeare companies having to deal with, do we continue to do the Taming of the Shrew? 
do we continue to present The Merchant of Venice, these two highly problematic Shakespearean plays where there is a problem at the heart of them. And most Shakespeare companies, for <laughs> largely because Shakespeare didn't write that many plays, choose to do them with interpretation. But And maybe that's the hope for Carousel is should never be produced without significant notes without some opportunity for conversation about the about men's violence uh, against women the the epidemic of uh, domestic abuse uh, that is just as you say being talked about now um, I mean it's only 25 years and you think the history of this play is longer than that history so to address it in some way and probably for, you know, churches, religious people, gosh, if the local community group is putting on a production of Carousel, is your time to say, I mean, you could <laughs> protest it, but it might be more helpful to say, we're going to have a seminar at uh, yeah, Trinity Episcopal let's Church. This. Let's talk about it. Let's let's explore these characters. And yeah. gosh, we could even have a little sing and we can all sing. You'll never walk alone. Together. <laughs> You'll never walk alone. <laughs> Yeah, well, it is, you know, it's a it's a it's a song that I thought was pretty schlocky for a lot. Like I didn't have a lot of love for You'll Never Walk Alone. I think I I'd been to too many weddings where it was used kind of poorly and sung by a less than stellar contralto and um I'm I'm coming around to it though. I I've, I've been I've seen Carousel a couple times and that song has really moved me. Um when it's when it's staged intelligently and by a company that you sense that they understand what's going or at least they they're aware of how deeply problematic this piece is and yet the power of that music, I don't know, does do something pretty pretty amazing. It does maybe so, help people get off the carousel of abuse, the carousel yeah. of economic deprivation, the carousel of not being able to not control, of not being able to control your violence if you're a man, and opens up another possibility of, of it's, it's hope. I mean, yeah. walk on, walk Candy. on with hope in your with hope heart. in your heart. <laughs> a great Advent theme. And you'll since never we're walk recording along. this in Advent 2020. Yes, indeed, yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So next week, next podcast is South Pacific. South Pacific, yeah. Are we? We're, we're kind of continuing this this thread of the uh, not the darker side of Rodgers and Hammerstein, but certainly the more complicated side. That this is not just uh, showgirls and jazz hands and high energy production numbers we're, we're getting into some some meaty stuff and no no more so than in south pacific which uh sort of hammerstein at his most social gospel best so we get to talk about uh his his agenda if you like and it's a it's a pretty interesting one it's a great show can't wait to talk to you about that next time yeah looking forward to it okay until then bye-bye bye the gospel of musical theater is a production of trinity episcopal cathedral in portland oregon Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.